1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to read the passage that speaks on the Lord's Supper. First Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. For I received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he break it and said, take eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also, he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Let's pray. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus Christ you'd help me now, Lord, as I preach this message you put on my heart. God, I need your help to communicate this truth clearly. And Lord, I pray that you would do what only you can do in the hearts of each person who's listening. Perhaps someone is here today and they've never placed their faith and trust in in Jesus alone for their salvation. Perhaps they're still trying to convince themselves that they're a good enough person. They're trying to justify themselves in some way. Lord, show them very clearly their need for a savior. And I pray that today would be the day of their salvation. Lord, many of us in this room are, have the testimony of salvation, but we still struggle with the broken bits in our life. And I pray that through the clear teaching of your truth, we would see how to celebrate the broken bits. I thank you for your goodness and mercy. Jesus, name I pray. Amen. Jesus' mother, Mary, really struggled with the fact that Jesus was born to die. And when we look at 1 Corinthians chapter number 11, now this is written by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul wrote this. He's instructing a church on how to take the Lord's Supper. They were doing it all wrong. They were making it more into a party. Matter of fact, they were even coming and getting drunk. They were basically calling a fellowship the Lord's Supper. The rich people would bring all their food and they would eat it with their friends and the poor people wouldn't have anything at all. And so he very quickly kind of instructs them and says, there are two elements There's the bread, the unleavened bread representing the body of Jesus. And then there is the grape juice, right? Or the crushed grapes to represent the blood of Jesus. And it's supposed to be a solemn affair. It's supposed to be a time where we examine ourselves. It's not supposed to be a party. It's not supposed to be a fellowship. That's for a different time, right? The church can come together and have a good time and eat. But he is going back to the time when Jesus instructed his disciples on this time of remembrance. And that's what the Lord's Supper is. It's a time of remembrance. It's a time to remember what Jesus did. It's not a time where by receiving these elements, 
these, that somehow the grace of God is connected to these elements. And when we take them, somehow we are kind of giving ourselves a little taste of salvation. And, and as we eat it and as we taste it and as we come together, then we're kind of slowly building ourselves this little bridge of religion towards salvation by taking these elements. That's not the purpose whatsoever. The Bible says in, in Romans chapter number five and verse number one, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We all have something that we're telling ourselves justifies us in the sight of God. We all know that there's a need inside. None of us just automatically thinks I'm perfect. There's nothing wrong with me. But people justify themselves in different ways. Most of, the, most of the time, they justify themselves through convincing themselves they're a good person. I'm a good person because of this, this, and this. Sometimes people get into religious reasons. Well, I've been baptized, or I'm a member of that church, or my family's always gone to church, or this is the religion of my family. Justifying it, justifying it, justifying it. It's balanced. See, there's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong here. I'm justified justified in the sight of God. We may be justified in the sight of others. There may be, people may look at us and think there's nothing wrong with them. They're a great person. But when we're talking about salvation and getting into heaven, we're looking at things through God's viewpoint. And it says here in Romans 5.1, we must be justified by faith, not through works. And we must be justified with or through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus died on the cross for us. He is the one who paid for our sin. It's as if I owed this enormous bill. It was impossible for me to pay. And if it was paid, it would be called justified. You're fine. Your debt is cleared. Everything is balanced. But because of my actions of sin, and also because of my even my sin nature, it can never be justified, justified simply by me doing some good thing. So Jesus then comes behind me and he says, I will pay the price. This enormous debt that Corey owes, I will pay it on the cross. That's what his death is. His death is him paying the price on our behalf to please God's perfect sense of justice in the universe. We look at the, the natural law. We, this is, we're talking about the spiritual world now, the spiritual law. And the spiritual law says that we are sinners and we owe a great debt. And there is impossible for us to pay. No amount of religion no amount of taking the elements of the Lord's Supper, no amount of baptisms, no amount of, of, of prayers, no amount of money being given into the plate can justify us. Weighs heavy on our conscience. I still have that sin. I still have the shame. I still don't have confidence before God that I am saved. But when we come to Christ in faith and we say, I am believing on you, believing on a person, not believing a plan, 
I'm not believing a, a priest. I'm not believing a church. I'm not placing my, my soul's fate in the hand of an institution coming to Jesus. Jesus is the one that died. Christ died for our sin. So we come to him. We come to him honestly. We come to him humbly. We come to him wholly, all of us. And we say, I'm giving you my heart. I'm trusting that what you did in the past on that day sufficiently paid my sin debt in the eyes of God, the judge, the righteous judge of this world. And when we do that, we are in a position now of being justified. We're justified. We're saved. It's just as if we've never sinned. We're not perfect by any means, but we've been redeemed. We've been bought back. We've been saved. And Jesus said, I don't want you to forget what I did for you. And so I'm going to institute two ordinances. One of them, an ordinance is like a rule or like a ceremony. One of them is baptism. It's a picture of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. We dunk people in the tank. That's a picture of his death. And then we say the words raised to walk in newness of life, just like Jesus rose from the dead. That's what baptism is. It doesn't wash away our sin. It's a physical act. Nothing physical that we do brings about spiritual cleansing. It's a physical act. It just identifies us as a Christian. We're identifying with Christ, right? Just because I wear a wedding band doesn't mean it automatically makes me married to my wife, April. I put this on because I'm married. We received each other. We made that agreement. Don't ask me to remember the date. Just kidding, right? July 8th. No, that's not right. Yeah, it is. July 8th, 2006. Ah, got it. She's going to listen to the recording later, so. Right? And so I put on the wedding band to, shake, to, to, to tell everybody, hey, I've, I've, been, I've been taken, right? Uh, this is a symbol of our love, as it says in the, wedding, in the wedding. That's what baptism is. Baptism doesn't make us saved. It's just a symbol of our commitment to Christ. It's an outward symbol. It also identifies us with a doctrinal position. Okay, if I get baptized in a Catholic church, that means I believe what Catholics believe. If I get baptized in a Lutheran church, that means I believe what Lutherans teach and believe. If I get baptized in a Baptist church, it means I believe what Baptists teach and believe, right? So it identifies me with a doctrinal position as well. But then we come to the, the Lord's Supper. Now, we've already taken the Lord's Supper. We always do that at the 10 o'clock hour, okay? Um, and, uh, but we left it up here kind of as a little bit of an illustration, to talk about just the simple fact, and I just want to go through a couple of short passages and some of the, there'll be familiar stories to us. We're just going to talk about how we, Jesus, when he's, you think about this just for a moment. We don't always want to talk about the broken parts of our life. We don't want to always talk about the things that went wrong. Now, some people are okay talking about those things. But oftentimes they're very personal things and it takes a while for us to even open up to our best friend about them. But when Jesus is talking about the Lord's table, he says, I want you to remember I was broken for you. I was broken for you. How to celebrate the broken bits. I've got four points. We have broken things in our life. I want you to think about the broken things in your life. 
broken dreams, broken plans, broken relationships, broken trust, broken health, broken families, broken minds and spirits, broken faith, broken finances. We live in a broken world. We live in a broken world. We live lives that have been broken. Now, some people want to take the broken things in this world and in this life and say, see, look at all this brokenness. This proves there is no God. If there was a God, he wouldn't let anything be broken. Let me tell you something. That day is coming. The longing in the heart of humanity for nothing to ever be broken broken again. That is proof that one day we will be in heaven where he will wipe away every tear. Amen. That day is coming. That day is not now. Yes, he can prevent brokenness. And he does that when we follow his truth. And he does that through his mercy and his grace. We could have been hit head on even before we were saved. His mercies are everlasting, the Bible says. He is good to the believer and to the unbeliever. His grace is present in every step of our lives, whether we recognize it or not. But the amazing thing about our God is that he sent a redeemer to come after those of us who have been broken, condemned to live a hopeless life. And he doesn't just come to where we are and leave us there, but like the story of the Good Samaritan, he comes to where we are broken, we can do nothing for ourselves, and through his patient and slow attention to our spirit and our heart, he nurses us back to a new life and a new health. He redeems us. He has a plan for the brokenness in your life. There's a lot of broken things that have happened over the pandemic. A lot of brokenness. I never thought that would happen to me. I never thought I'd be here. The plans I had from three, three years ago, perhaps you're thinking, are nothing. And it's not just that it's bent. It's broken. We can't go back. But every, every so often in the local church, Jesus said, I want you to remember... I have power over things that are broken. I want you to remember that I was once broken as well. That my body was broken. That my blood was spilled. And it was done on purpose. The first thing that we see when we're talking about how to celebrate the broken bits if there's something broken in your life, we have to be willing to look at this through the eyes of faith. If we insist on things, things through seeing life through the eyes of a skeptic, there's never any reason for something to be broken. If we're not willing to take a little bit of faith and say, okay, I'm willing to look at things through the eyes of faith. Because if all you're going to do is look at the cross through the eyes of a skeptic, it seems like a failure. But we've got to remember, it wasn't just the cross. There's also an empty tomb. 
He rose victorious over the brokenness. The perspective. When things get broken in our life, God is trying to teach us a new perspective. When when that relationship is broken, he's trying to teach us a new perspective. When our plans are broken, he's trying to teach us there is a new and higher perspective. Jesus' disciples were devastated, were they not, when they saw him hanging on the cross? Devastated. Our hopes and our dreams are shattered. We thought it was he, the two disciples of, on the road to Emmaus said in John chapter 20. We thought it was he that was going to deliver Israel. We We thought the Messiah was here now. It's funny, Jesus walks up to him and says, why are you so sad? Sadness, an indication, something's broken. You know what's interesting? Sometimes when things break in our life, we come from brokenness. If we're not careful, it can produce a hardness. Well, if that's the way it's going to be, I'm just never going to love again. I'm never going to trust again. The disciples could have easily said, you know, if following Jesus, if he's just going to be crucified, he's going to die. And they did. Did they quit? They quit. They did quit. They did quit. But he came back and he proved to them, guys, listen, there is a greater purpose and perspective that God is working here. There's a bigger picture. Could it be that the brokenness in your life, the broken things in your life, is just God trying to get you to see that there is a greater perspective? That our lives are not our own, that we've been bought with a price? That there's a greater perspective? We can see that there is something bigger that's going on here. The pain in this moment is nothing compared to the victory of faith afterwards. Jesus' goal in his ministry was not self-preservation. But his goal was to fulfill God's plan for his life. He realized that there was a greater perspective. From God's viewpoint, the brokenness on the cross was... I'm going to kill myself. I'm going to move this. The pers- God's perspective of Jesus dying on the cross, this, this, is, this, is, this is perfectly going according to plan. You see, because without the cross, there could be no resurrection. Without the resurrection, there could be no victory over sin. Without the brokenness of the cross, there could never be the greater purpose of saving mankind from their sin. And if we take that huge theme and bring it down to our life, we've got to be willing to come to God and say, God, maybe whatever is broken in my life is trying to teach me your perspective on this. Your perspective. Would you trust God that his perspective is better than yours? Would you trust God that his perspective of what he sees, that he can see, The end from the beginning. He knows the end of the story. 
Would you trust him with what is broken in your life? Look at John chapter 6. We'll look at another instance here. John 6 is one of my favorite stories. Feeding of the 5,000. The feeding of the 5,000. Now, this may be a familiar story to you, and that's fantastic. John 6. This is at the height of Jesus' popularity. He's doing miracles. He's teaching. Remember, this is before Instagram and TikTok and smartphones and right all that stuff. Perhaps you've been to a country or perhaps you're from a country where if something's going on, man, people just come, hey, something's going on. And they just, there's just throngs of people in the streets. That's what was happening. They were just following Jesus for days, listening to him, watching him heal. Verse two, and a great multitude followed him because they saw his miracles, which he did on them that were diseased. Verse five, when Jesus then lifted up his eyes and saw a great company come unto him, he saith unto Philip, when shall we buy bread that these may eat? This he said to prove him for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 penny worth of bread is not sufficient for them that every one of them may take a little. So the perspective here or the story here is that he's got thousands of people following him and Jesus feels the need to feed them. So he goes to one of his disciples, presents him with a problem. Philip, look at all these people. How are we going to feed all these people? Philip's like, if we had 200 penny worth of bread, which usually it was a penny a day for work. So we're thinking like, you know, 365 days of work, uh, 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 365 days a year. I'll get it out. Roughly a year's wages, if we're just thinking in terms of, of how many days a week someone would work. So take your salary whatever that may be, right? Or the medium salary of whatever may be represented in the room. We're going to take all that and we're going to go and we're going to use all of that to buy a piece of bread for everyone. It wouldn't have, it wouldn't have even touched. It wouldn't have even touched the need. That's what Philip is saying here. That's what he's describing. Verse eight. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, saith unto him, oh, I love this man. Here you've, got, here you've got Philip the genius, right? Let's pick on Philip just for a second. Jesus is coming up to Philip. And he's saying, hey, what are we gonna do about this? Philip's like, I have no idea, right? If we, had, if we had a year's salary and we could go buy bread, as if there was a bakery shop where that could even be found, right? A year's salary worth of bread to be just picked up, right? It, 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 and then here comes, it, it must have sounded a little silly, Right after Philip said, we, we, if, if we had all of this money and if a baker could be found and bread could be found, it wouldn't even touch the need. And, and yet how silly it sounds for this next disciple to come up to him and said, uh, hey, um, I, I do have this little boy here. Think about how silly this sounds in comparison to the need. And this little boy has got a little bitty lunch of five loaves and two small fishes. Now, small loaves, barley loaves, little round, kind of like a little bun, like the size of a, a, a uh, like the size of a hamburger bun or something like that. And two small fishes, just small fish. And then he says something that makes sense. But what are they among so many? Now, obviously, we know here that this boy, this lad, was willing to part with his lunch. 
His mother, most likely, we assume, doesn't say, but we're assuming his mom, oh, you're going to go see Jesus. You're going to be gone, you know, for all day long or maybe a couple of days. However, we don't know. Here's, 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 here's a little lunch. So he grabs it and he runs off. And he's just got this little bit. Now, if we, take, if we take a moment and we flip over to another passage that describes this in Mark chapter 6. Same story. This story is mentioned in each of the Gospels, right? Mark chapter 6 and verse number 38. He saith unto them, how many loaves have ye? So again, same, same story. How many loaves have ye? Go and see. And when they knew, they said five and two fishes. Out of all these people, after a quick examination is made, how many, how many loaves do you have? They said five. That's it. That's all we can find. He commanded them to make them all sit down by companies upon the green grass. And they sat down in ranks by hundreds and by fifties. And we had taken the five loaves and two fishes. He looked up to heaven and blessed. And what's the next word? And he break. He broke it. He broke it. Jesus broke the bread. Now it makes sense to us on a human level to think, well, yeah, if you're going to share bread, you're going to have to break it and give it to people. That makes perfect sense. But it's interesting to me that when, when, this, when this boy gave his lunch to the disciple and the disciple gave it to Jesus, Jesus took it, he blessed it, and then he broke it, and he began to distribute it. And then if we go back to our story in John chapter number 6, this is amazing. We find that it says here in John chapter 6, in verse 11, Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed to the disciples, and the disciples to them that were set down... And likewise of the fishes, as much as they would. Everybody got completely full of fish and bread. As much as they wanted to eat. They were not being polite. Sometimes when you're eating with others, because there's just a small amount, that you have to be polite. You want to partake and you want to participate, but... You're being polite. Just a couple of mouthfuls. I'm just going to take a little bit. No, no, it's okay. No, let's, let's share and let's just all be polite. They weren't being polite here. They were eating as much as they wanted to eat. Verse 12, when they were filled, he said unto his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain, that nothing be lost. Therefore, they gathered them together and filled 12 baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which remained over and above unto them that had eaten. 12 baskets. It doesn't really matter how big the basket was. If it was a little basket or a big basket. 12 baskets. 12 baskets. Listen, 12 baskets is more than five loaves and two small fishes. Would we agree on that? The leftovers... The fragments, the take home in the little baggie was more than they originally started out with. But first, listen, guys, this is it. This is the point. First, it had to be broken. First, it had to be broken. 
God can take a broken life and make it so much better than it would have been had it never been broken. He can take a relationship that's been broken. And if we're willing to like this little boy with his lunch, give it to him. I trust you. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do this your way, Jesus. When you are giving something to Jesus, you are releasing control. I'm not going to control this. You know why people don't come to church as much as they should? They're scared God is going to take control of their life. And they don't know what's going to happen if they let that happen. Exactly. But I'm going to tell you what's going to happen if you let that happen. He's going to make it more and make it better. And he's going to take you places that you could have never taken it if you just kept it intact and weren't willing to just let him have it. I wonder if there'd be somebody in the room today. God's speaking to you and saying, quit trying to control me. Quit trying to control me. God is saying, just like the lad, let me have you. Let me have that choice. Yeah, but I'm scared it's going to get broken. Hey, you know what? The promise is, is that if you give something to Jesus, he will break it. <gasps> I don't think I can trust him. If, 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 I, if, I, if I give my relationship to Jesus, he's going to break it. Yeah, he may break it, but he's going to break it so that he can make it something greater than it could have ever been on his own. Purpose is found in giving. How to celebrate the broken bits. We have to be willing to accept the fact that when something is broken in my life, one, God's trying to teach me his perspective. Two, he's trying to teach me a greater purpose. There's a greater purpose than just that little boy eating his lunch by himself, watching everyone be hungry. Listen, if I can get a little practical here in just a moment. This world is dying for Christians. For Christians to give themselves to Jesus so that they can start making a difference in this city and in this world. We watch the news and see the brokenness of this world. And yet we've got so many Christians who are playing this really skeptical, protective, I'm not really sure, I can't really do this kind of Christianity. Playing it really safe. We have gifts in this room that could revolutionize this city. We have gifts in this room that could revolutionize this church. We have gifts in this room and in those who normally come who may not be here at this moment. Where if, we, if, if, if I was willing to take my gift and use it and you were willing to take your gift and use it and you're willing to take your gift and use it and we together could create something here. Actually, let me take that back. God could create something here in this town that would revolutionize the lives of so many broken people. But I've got to be willing to trust him with my life just like that lad trusted Last one in the time that we have. We're going to go all the way back to Genesis. We studied this one on Wednesday, but it was too good. Genesis 29. It was too good to just leave it on Wednesday. I couldn't just leave it. 
Are you the kind of person when you go to a restaurant, you already know what you want if you've been there before? Are you the kind of person that you have to look at the menu again? I'm, I'm not like that. If I'm, if I'm going to a restaurant and I've been there before, I know exactly what I want. I mean, I could, I could hand them a slip of paper as soon as I walk through the door and say, go ahead and start firing up the grill, man. This is, I know this is exactly what I want. You need a menu? Not really. Not unless it has a weird name and I can't remember how to pronounce it. Then you're hoping it's got a number next to it. So you can say, give me the number three, right? Amen. Something that's just so, that's what this is. This is kind of one of these things where it's like, I, I already know, man, this is just too good to just kind of just have it once. Let's, let's have it again. Man, it's good like that. Genesis 29. Okay, now this is a, this is a weird situation. I'm going to go ahead and warn you right up front. Sometimes when you read in the Old Testament, the culture back then is very different than from the culture we experience here in the West. Okay? So to kind of give you a quick recap here, this story is about a man named Jacob. He goes to a particular town on his mother's side to find a wife. When he first enters into this town, again, this is... 4,000 years ago plus. There's a well there and there are some sheep. And he goes and he starts to water the sheep and he begins to inquire whether or not this was his mother's family, his extended family. Is this the right place? They said, oh yeah, it's the right place. And then he sees this girl coming. And they said, that is one of the girls from your, from your mother's side. That's, that's, that's Rachel. Well, the Bible describes her as being a very beautiful woman. And the Bible says that when Jacob saw Rachel, he fell in love with her. Later on, of course, this is a culture where they had dowry. Later on, they, they, uh, he, 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 talked to the, he talked to the father, Laban, and he says, I will work for you on your farm for seven years for Rachel. And the Bible says that that seven years to him seemed like nothing because he had so much love for her. Well, in this culture, when they would marry, the day came, the marriage day came. And in that culture, um, they, would have the, they, they would have the ceremony at night and the, the bride would be covered in this thick veil and they would bring the bride into the tent with the groom and they would stay there for a week or so. And when he, when, when he got to be mourning, it seemed like that they, maybe they weren't... Uh, very intimate or whatever, because the very next mo- the very next morning he woke up and he's like, "It's not Rachel. It's the older sister named Leah." It's like you would kind of think that you would know that, but he didn't know that. I got the wrong sister. It's the older sister. So he comes to the father and he he tells the father, "You gave me the wrong bride. I worked seven years for this girl that I loved." And the father gives a lame excuse. He's like, "Oh." It's because in this place, the older one has to get married first. Well, he could have told him that any one of those days for the last seven years, and he didn't say that. So he says, I will work for you another seven years to get Rachel. Now, we've got to understand, we're going to look at things just for a moment from Leah's perspective, the older sister, the one who was not the preferred sister. She was older, but the Bible says she wasn't near as attractive as her younger sister. So Jacob really does not spend a whole lot of time with Leah. 
he spends a lot of time with Rachel. And this resulted in Leah really having a broken heart. Can we see that? You're in an arranged marriage. You don't really have a choice. And look, you're not the most attractive lady in the world, Leah. And you have to get tricked. You have to trick the guy into you getting married. Right? That's what we're seeing here. I want you to notice what God did about it with Leah's broken life, broken heart. Genesis 29 and verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated. Hated in the Bible means loved less. Doesn't mean that he hated her guts, as we would say it today's vernacular. It means he loved her less than Rachel. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. When God looked at the situation, he said, Rachel has Jacob's love, but I'm going to show extra love to the one who's broken. Now we're going to see what Leah did. There's kind of this relationship with her and God. Because it says here in verse number 31, and Leah conceived and bare a son. And she called his name Reuben, for she said, Surely the Lord hath looked upon my affliction. Now therefore, my husband will love me. Verse 33, and she conceived again and bare a son, and said, Because the Lord hath heard that I was hated. So the final point is this in the brokenness of Leah's life, she. Use the broken heart as a momentum to pray to God. And because she prayed to God, and we see that in her children's names, one, she's saying, God sees me, and the other name of the child means God heard me. God sees me, and God hears me. Out of the brokenness of her marriage relationship, out of the brokenness of her, 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 her being the less preferred one, the one that is, is, is not being paid as much attention to. God is the one who still came back and said, I see you. I hear you. It, there's a brokenness that exists in our hearts when we feel like we're not being seen. There's a brokenness that exists in our hearts when we feel like we're not being heard. And she could have sat in that brokenness. But with a little bit of faith... She prayed to God and God said, I see you, here's a child. I hear you, here's a child. How do we celebrate the broken bits? When something in your life begins to break, God is meaning to teach you prayer. We can, we can go back to that broken relationship, go back to that broken time in our life, go back to that time when our heart was broken and say, it was right then that God taught me to pray. It was right then God taught me a different perspective. It was right then God taught me a greater purpose. It was right then. We don't have to sit in the brokenness. We don't have to let the brokenness be our new destiny. Because of Christ, because of what he did on a cross, we have a living faith. We can come to him in faith, come to him in prayer. He can teach us a new perspective. He can teach us a new purpose. And he can teach us that he's a God that hears prayer. Everybody bow your heads, please, and close your eyes if you would.